concept is massive decisions in our life. So, so once in a lifetime, uh, you will face at least once in a lifetime, maybe twice, maybe three times, maybe a little more for, for some people, but, but you will face a gut-wrenching decision. A decision for which there are, is basically like a lose-lose situation in front of you. Uh, you won't know exactly what to do. It will uh, kind of push you to your limits when you face these kinds of decisions. And, uh, and so today, we're actually going to be looking at the stories of four women who had, had to face very similar decisions to what I'm talking about. Gut-wrenching, sort of lose-lose decisions. It's hard to see how making these decisions in any way could turn out for good, but we're going to look at the stories of of four women who have to make these kinds of decisions. So to prepare us for this, I want to play a game called Would You Rather? Uh, And so we're going to play this together. So just so you know what's going to happen, we're going to kind of do two different sets of Would You Rathers. The first one, the first ones are kind of like more fun, a little bit innocuous, but then I'll let you know that the the, the second set of decisions that we're going to look at, they get a little bit more intense. So Let's, uh, let's look at the first set of decisions. So let's see the next slide up here. And uh, one of the things that you have to think about as we talk about these decisions is this question. What are you more afraid of? What are you more afraid of? Because just be aware, your fear in all of these situations is gonna determine how you make the decisions that are to be made. So, uh, so let's see the first fears up here. Okay, so would you rather be stuck in a broken ski lift or be stuck on a broken elevator? And then we'll just kind of get a show of hands. So how many people want to be stuck on the broken ski lift? How many people? Okay. And how many people in the broken elevator? Okay, good. All right, very good. So that's, uh, so, so we, got, we got a few more here who are not so afraid of heights, probably more afraid of getting stuck in small spaces. Okay, how about this? You have three hours and you can either spend that three hours stuck in a room full of spiders, dropping down from the ceiling, crawling all over the walls and on the floors, or, or you can spend those three hours treading water at sea. Okay, so, so let's get a show of hands. How many want the spiders? How many will take the spiders? Okay, and how many will take the sea? I, so I gotta let you all know, I don't know if I can tread water for three hours, but I'm gonna take that over the room full of spiders any day. Okay, okay. So uh, let's see the, see the next scenario up here. Okay, imagine. Imagine you have to talk to a room full of 60 people for about 40 minutes, and, uh, and you have to stand up there in, in front of them and, and give something like from the word of God to them or something like that. Would you rather, in that moment where you have to stand up in front of these people, have a uh, have uncontrollable flatulence the entire time or have a booger hanging out of your nose the entire time that you're talking to these people. Everybody in the room sees it. Everybody in the room knows it. So how many people would do uncontrollable flatulence? Yes, yeah, okay. Because so, everybody knows it then. Like, you're, you, you know it, they know it. If you got the, okay, how many people have the booger then? Yeah, okay. Yeah, because, because you can't see the booger, but everybody else can see it. So, so uh, okay, so those are some more kind of innocuous fears, uh, things that we're balancing out against each other. Okay, now we're going to go into kind of a more serious realm of would-you-rathers. So uh, let's look at the, this. Um, you're working for a company, and you uncover a major financial scandal. And this company has a history of self-protection and retribution. 
towards anybody who would try to do anything to undo the company. So, do you report it and lose your job or overlook it and comply with the scandal? Now, I'm not gonna ask you to respond to this. I just want yet to ask you to consider. Do you report it and lose your job or do you overlook it? Do you not say anything? Do you keep quiet and comply with scandal? Okay, how about this one? You suspect that your 18-year-old son is dealing drugs. You have found a large stash of cash and drugs and have seen recent uh, very expensive purchases that he has made. So do you call the police, send him to prison, or do you try to handle this yourself? And in all honesty, if you try to handle it yourself, it's probably gonna get worse. You're not gonna actually be able to do anything about it. So do you send him to prison or do you let it get worse? Okay, one more. This one is a degree further than all of the others. You are a parent in China under the one-child policy, and you find out that you are pregnant with your second child. Do you keep it a secret, threaten your life, threaten your family's life, or do you submit to abortion or infanticide or whatever it is that the government wants you to do and give up your child's life? You know, in that last set of scenarios that we went through, the right answer was pretty clear in every situation. The right answer was pretty clear in every situation, but what makes the decision for us is still fear. What do we fear more? Are we afraid of what we're gonna lose? Today's passage, the things that we're gonna look at today, it's all about fear, and it's all about fear's influence on our decision. We're gonna see people who have competing fears, people who have visceral fears inside of them, people who have danger of their life, of their family's life, their livelihood, all of this stuff is on the line. And the guiding principle this morning is this, the outcome of your hardest decision is determined by your greatest fear. The outcome of your hardest decision is determined by your greatest fear. So so fear is behind every single decision that we see in this passage. And and that's no surprise because honestly, this passage is one of the most just honest, visceral, kind of scary, violent, uncensored passages that we see in all of scripture. Uh, And it comes with four really kind of excruciating gut-wrenching scenarios, and so we're going to look at each of those scenarios this morning. So we're in Exodus, and we're going to be starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. And last week, we we saw how God's people, in the midst of this place called Egypt, they were really tempted to feel forgotten because they knew that God had given them some promises. Uh, They knew that God had told them some things would happen, and they were starting to see that realized, but it was not fully realized while they were in Egypt. So here are just, as a review, God's promises, the things that he promised to give them. He promised to give them kids. You're going to be a great nation. He promised to give them a land, a place where they could exist and thrive as a nation, and he promised to, to bless them, that whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. These are all the things that God had promised to his people, but now they were in this place called Egypt. And sure, they were growing as a nation. They were having the kids like they should, but this new Pharaoh comes and takes over, and he starts oppressing them. He starts making them work harder than they have ever had to work in their life. Uh, he, he makes sure that they have no, no days off, that they are just going, going, going all the time. He starts taking advantage of these people. And so when God's promises contradict our realities, it's really, really hard to believe that God is still up to something. That's what we looked at last week. But 
no matter how we feel, no matter what we might be experiencing in the midst of feeling forgotten, we acknowledge that God is still good. God is still powerful. God is still in control. What God says is still true. And that's what we looked at last week. So, so God's people, they're in that season. It was a really dark season for them. It was a really hard season. It was very intense. And now we see that the story even goes a step further to, to show us how much darker it gets. So the first excruciating scenario we look at this morning is this, defying a mass murderer. Verse 15 says this, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. I wanna make it clear, the order that's given here, it's nothing short of mass genocide. Pharaoh is commanding genocide and he is aiming it at eliminating a whole people. He wants to get rid of this people. And I don't want you to miss the secret and sinister nature of what he is doing because, number one, he's relying on the Hebrews to carry it out. He's not, he's not looking right now to the Egyptians to carry it out, but he's kind of doing it behind the scenes and going to the midwives, going to the slaves, and saying, hey, slaves, I need you to kill your own people. Okay, he's keeping it behind the scenes a little bit. And on top of that, he says, and you need to do it while they're on the birth stool. So when the, the, as soon as the child comes out, you need to make sure that it happens because you know what? You know, sometimes kids die in childbirth. And so if he can keep it secret, if, they, if you can make sure it happens right at the moment of birth, then, then maybe we can hide what we're doing here. And this is kind of like what happened in Hitler's Germany. Uh, as persecution towards the Jews. Before, before it was even really intense, it started kind of slow and kind of sinister and kind of secret. You know how it started? It started with euthanasia of people who are mentally handicapped in secret uh, kind of backroom offices, doctor's offices, that kind of thing. And it wasn't quite out in the open that this is what they were doing. And, and that's kind of where they perfected their use of the gas that they, uh, that they used to eventually eradicate or try to eradicate the Jewish people. Uh, and then on top of that, then what they started doing is they started crafting narratives, and this was kind of uh, heading up through Germ Germany's history. They crafted narratives about the Jewish people, uh, the, the kind of people that they were, that they're kind of a, a lower people on the totem pole, that they kind of pollute the gene pool. That's, that's the words that they started using about these people. And so then it desensitized the German people to the point where you could have Auschwitz existing in the middle of Germany and millions of people being eradicated in that place. And no, everybody was just kind of like, okay about it. Everybody kind of just ignored what was going on. It was kind of kept secret. Like nobody ever actually confronted what was happening there. And so even then, it was in some ways hidden, although if the Germans asked the right questions, they would have known what was going on. I want, to know, I want you to know that, that Pharaoh's atrocity, the thing that he's doing, it's of the very same nature of what we saw in the Holocaust. So you might ask the question, how could he? How could he do something like this? And I want to tell you that the answer is fear. Fear is the answer. We saw this in Exodus 1.10. It says this, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Least they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh was afraid of losing his power. 
He was afraid that they were going to take his power away. In fact, it was his ultimate fear. So like Hitler, Hitler's ultimate fear is that uh, his race would be polluted. Um, you have communist countries, they're, they're afraid of losing control to the populace. Um, all of these, these different organizations that throughout history have committed various atrocities, they have an ultimate fear, and that ultimate fear is leading them to commit these atrocities. So I want you to see their fear, it's in the wrong place. And so the outcome of wrongly placed fear, it is darkness and destruction. The outcome of wrongly placed fear is darkness and destruction. That's what we see happening in Pharaoh. So you know what? Your fear of losing a really, really good thing, if that fear is ultimate for you, it will lead you to do some really, really bad things. Some things that you know are unacceptable. In fact, I'd like to submit to you that if you have enough wrongly placed fear inside of you, that, that there is the potential for darkness to come out of you in such a way as it came out of Pharaoh in this situation, in such a way as it came out of these people throughout history, because that is kind of the potential for what's inside of our hearts if our fear is misplaced. So do you want to ensure that you keep contributing to the cycle of brokenness that exists in this world? Well then, maybe make your ultimate fear losing people's approval of you. Because if that's the case, you know what you'll do to hold on to people's approval? You'll lie. You'll deceive. You'll kind of make up stories. You'll, you'll keep, uh, create situations in which you can hold on to people's approval. Uh, maybe you uh, make your ultimate fear losing control in, in your leadership or in the places where you kind of are exercising authority. And so you know what you'll do if you make that your ultimate fear? You'll start to de- devalue other gifted leaders. Uh, maybe you make your ultimate fear not achieving your definition of success. And if that is your ultimate fear, you know what you'll do? You'll kind of sacrifice anybody and everybody around you to achieve that definition of success. You'll abandon your family. You'll abandon the important people to you. If your ultimate fear is just kind of running into all the what ifs, like what if this falls apart and then what if this falls apart? If that's just like your ultimate fear is kind of just things not working out, you know what? You'll kind of just accept the status quo. You'll let things go as is because that you can control, that you can keep your mind on. You'll kind of let that drive out any mission. So, you know, you've heard this phrase before, you have nothing to fear but fear itself, right? You've heard that. I don't totally agree with that, and you'll see why in in just a little bit. But you could say it like this, you have nothing to fear but wrongly placed fear itself. Because that was the very thing that, that led Pharaoh to create all of this destruction, uh, to, to allow these kinds of atrocities to exist in Egypt. Okay, so I want to draw your attention to the women who are here in the story. Shifra and Pua. They are the characters that we have named in this story. Moses is the only, this story that we're going to look at today, that Moses is the only other person who's given a name. Whenever an author in the Old Testament gives people names and doesn't give other people names, it should draw, it should really like catch our attention. And this should particularly throw us for a loop because these are women and they are slaves. Women, slaves, they're kind of in society at this time. They're like at the lowest of the low. 
So the fact that the author would name these individuals is really, really important, and their names should throw us for a loop. So I wanna tell you, don't forget these names because these are two of the most bold and courageous people in all of scripture. What they're asked to do is excruciating. The threat of disobeying this maniac is excruciating. They could lose their families, they could lose their lives, and and I want you to see that fear is actually going to determine the decision that they make. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Their rightly placed fear led them to disobey the king's order at threat of their very lives. And so I, I, I don't want you to see, like, I, I don't want you to miss the, the maternal instinct that's kind of written on their hearts. There's something that goes off inside of them when they see these children there that they know this is wrong because, listen, God's people, they don't really have a written law at this point. They have a few things that they're commanded to do. Uh, they have a promise about kids, like kids are a part of this promise that they're given, but they don't have anything kind of written down that says, don't do this. It's something that they just kind of intuit from understanding the character of God. Something inside of them knows that this is an atrocity, this thing that they've been asked to do. And this isn't just an atrocity for for the mom who's losing her baby. This is an atrocity against God. It's something that they understand in their very souls. And so even while they're tempted to feel forgotten, because let's be real, if you're commanded to do this in your country where, and God had given you all these promises, but now you're in this place where you're being commanded to kill your own people, to put an end to your own people, it's gonna be really easy to feel forgotten. It's gonna be really easy to think that God has overlooked you. But what we see is that even though they might have been tempted to feel that way, they feared God and not Pharaoh. So verse 18, The king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, well, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Question, is this true or false? Is this true or false? I wanna tell you it's probably both. There's probably elements of both because there's, there's, probably an existent reality where the Hebrew women, they, they knew what the midwives were going to do. And so they would avoid for as long as they possibly could having to go see the midwives. So they would, they would so that's, that's, that there's probably an element of truth in here, but I don't want you to miss the fact that they are trying to mislead Pharaoh. They are trying to mislead Pharaoh. And so, so, uh, so God's response, let's see what God's response to this is. Verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So let's contrast. Who did the midwives fear? Who could the midwives have feared? Like they could have feared Pharaoh. They had every reason to fear Pharaoh. But we see that they actually feared God. That that, that their fear of God was higher than their fear of Pharaoh. So, um, You know, what kind of emotions do you think that they went through as they broke the law of Pharaoh? As they, uh, you know, they they have this choice before them to either obey, like to obey this maniac and then drown babies and oppose God in the process, hurt people in the process. That's one decision. The other decision is they don't drown the babies. They don't actually carry out this command and they potentially face, you know, losing their families, losing their lives, getting their livelihood taken away. 
So I wanna distinguish between the two kinds of fear that we have present in this story so far. The first kind of fear, you have sinful fear. I wanna talk about what sinful fear does. Sinful fear turns against people. So, so sinful fear, it, it, it looks at other people and it, it finds a way to protect itself and turns outward to prevent people from coming in and taking the thing away that you're trying to protect. Sinful fear dispels love. Sinful fear, it has no concern for the other in this framework. Sinful fear dispels truth. Sinful fear doesn't care what is true, it only cares about the thing that it's trying to protect. And finally, sinful fear, it requires a foe. Sinful fear is all about turning people into enemies. Okay, so that's sinful fear. What about godly fear? Godly fear does this. It turns toward people in love. So while Pharaoh is there trying to um, execute an entire people group, the midwives are there turning towards these mothers and turning towards these babies and finding ways to protect them. It's turning towards people in love. Sin, uh, godly fear loves people sacrificially. You think of everything that the midwives put on the line, their lives, their livelihood, for the sake of helping save some of these children in their nation. Godly fear loves truth. God, th th listen, these women, they know what is right. They know what is right, and they, they strive to do the right thing, even though there are a whole lot of reasons for them not to do the right thing. They love truth, and then finally, godly fear it requires a healthy relationship. I want you to understand that, that these women, their view of God, their relationship of God, even though they feel forgotten, they understand that he is still good, that he is still for them, and that he is still to be followed, to be praised, that he is still a good father who has their best interests at heart. So here's the point of all of that, and our whole point this morning, when you feel forgotten, when you feel forgotten, it's really easy to get lost in the weeds of everything that's going on around you. When you feel forgotten, it's really easy to feel like nobody else is there with you to support you, to walk alongside you. When you feel forgotten, the world becomes a very frightening place. There are all sorts of threats to your existence, all sorts of things that could be taken away from you. There are all sorts of manifesting anxieties that you have. You might, and you might be tempted to make uh, make certain things your ultimate fear. You might make your ultimate fear the people that you could lose. You'd do anything to hold on to those people. You might make your ultimate fear trying to hold on to your success or hold on to your power or hold on to your money, whatever it might be, because those things can be taken away from you. And so when you feel forgotten, all of these things seem to be falling around, uh, around you. But here's the point. When you feel forgotten, do this. Fear God more. When you feel forgotten, fear God more. So we'll discover more what this looks like in a little bit. But the story, it gives us this transitional statement, and I want you to see the transitional statement here. Verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I want you to see what he's done. He has taken this very private thing, this thing that was happening in the back room, and he has now made it public. He has now instituted it into law. Throughout scripture at this point, as we just consider the story of scripture up to this point, there is no single human being who has caused greater horror and destruction 
amongst any people than this character, Pharaoh. And now he's taken his atrocities public. So I'm sure the, the, the Hebrew people, as they go through this, they are gonna be really inclined to maybe think God has abandoned them, to maybe think that God is not there for them. But through the actions of his people, he actually maintains his presence and he shows us that he's still working his purposes together. So let's see what this means for God's people. The second excruciating scenario we look at, keeping your baby a secret. So Exodus 2, uh, verse 1 says this, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So, so first of all, don't miss, Shifra and Pua are midwives. They actually stay the heroes of the story because nobody else is named at this point. Then that would actually lead us to draw the conclusion that Shifra and Pua are the reason that this baby is able to be born, that we're looking at. So we have this next piece of the story because they feared God because they actually placed the fear of God above the fear of Pharaoh. And uh, we're gonna see that this child, this child is actually Moses. Um, We're gonna get to watch what happens with this story as Moses has been born. So the narrative, it draws our attention to a woman whose baby is saved. Now, I am not a mom. I don't know what it's like to be a mom. But as I've been uh, watching my wife and as I just understand biology and how it works and emotion and all of these things kind of tie together into the nurturing care that a mother can provide, um, you know, these stories take on a whole new light when you consider those realities. You consider the challenge that is pregnancy. Just like the way that that exists, having to carry a child for that long, and then you consider the marathon of childbirth. And then, and then the baby finally comes, and then on top of that, you have all of these hormones that are like God-given hormones for the, for the mother to be able to care for this child. And then on top of that, you have the bond of, of just providing for and caring for and nursing this child. And then you add to all of that the reality that the most powerful man in the world who is a maniac wants to kill that child. What would that mean to this mother? She's considering this. I can't imagine, like every moment as she is trying to care for this child and provide for this child, she has in her mind this man who wants to see her child dead. And so she recognizes that there's only so long that she can successfully hide this child. And so verse three, it says this. It says, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So she has hit a decision point. Do I keep my child and be found by an Egyptian and then Pharaoh kills my family or Pharaoh ruins my livelihood? Or do I find some way to maybe possibly give my child a future? So, so this decision, find a way to give up her child, and, and, and this would lead to a, a better chance of survival, though it would be really frightening. She recognizes this child is not as safe with me as, as it is when I kind of just have to give up control. So, so she places the child in the river. Now, why would she do that in the river? Because, you know, there's got, there has got to be, like, uh, you know, crocodiles in the river. Uh, there have to be dangerous things in the river. Why, why would she do that? And so... so um, I think she probably 
had to know one thing, and she was banking on something else. So this was the, th- the thing that she had to know, and we'll see this in the story. She knew that someone bathes in this river, in this place, at a particular time of day. That was something that she was aware of. And she, so she, she knew that, and then she was banking on this. She was banking on the fact that the God of Israel had imprinted compassion on human hearts. She was banking on that. She didn't know for sure that it was the case, but she was hoping that there might be some level of compassion in whoever bathes in this river. So you know what? If you are overcome with fear, if you're overcome with fear, you know what you will do? You will hold on to control even when disaster is imminent. So imagine a person who is afraid of heights. And that person who is afraid of heights is at the top level of a burning building. And the fire department has inflated the trampoline there on the ground. But the person who is afraid of heights is so afraid of giving up control that they will not jump out of the burning building. Even though they know that their life is more in danger in the burning building than it is by jumping out and giving up control, they will hold on to control because that fear of heights is so strong for them. And so when you fear God first, you know what? You can let go of control even when the results are uncertain. That's what this mother does. She had no idea how this was gonna turn out, but she feared God first. She trusted God above all else, and, and she knew that if she tried to hold on to control, it wouldn't go well for her baby, and so she decided to give up control, even though the results were uncertain. So I can't imagine the weight of emotion that she was going through. You, know, you talk about feeling forgotten, And yet, even when she felt forgotten, her fear of God was still there in all of the decisions that she made. So let's see the results. The third excruciating scenario, defying Pharaoh in his own house. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So this is just the implication of the story. Uh, Moses is letting us know the sister is keeping watch to kind of see how this turns out. So verse five. Now the the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, that is Pharaoh's daughter, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So you know what she does? She reads the situation She recognizes what's happening. There's a baby who's in a basket in the middle of water. She knows that this law has just kind of been instituted by her father. And as she puts all of these pieces together, she goes, yes, this is a a Hebrew baby. And don't forget what her dad's law said. Her dad's law said, if you see the child, drown him. But something stops her. Something stops her. And there's all sorts of risks coming if she stops carrying out this action. She might have punishment from dad. She could set a bad example for the rest of the people about what you do with dad's laws. Um, She could be seen as a rebel in her own house. But something prompts her to risk all of that. Why? Why does this person who has no context for God or the things of God risk it? Because I believe some piece of God's heart is imprinted on every human soul. Some piece of God's heart is imprinted on every human soul. So she only has to look at this child. She only has to look at this child, encounter the baby crying to go in her mind, what he's asking me to do is not okay. Which means 
that the fear of God is even creeping into this one who is far from God. She couldn't name it. She didn't actually, like, she couldn't, she couldn't put the, the words to describe what it was that was going on inside of her. She didn't know, but there is something imprinted on her soul that is greater than her fear of her dad. So then, watch what happens next. Verse seven, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, okay, so his sister was standing at a distance watching what would be done. So then she comes along now at the right time and said to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Think of the gut-wrenching reality that, that his mother just went through. And now she gets to be reunited with her child. So, so the sister, she follows the basket at a distance. She, she inserts herself at an opportune time. And you know what? She was young, but she loved her family well, and she was available to be used by God. And so then, in verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So not only is she reunited with her child, but she gets paid to nurse the child. So the woman took the child and nursed him. There's an incredible irony here, which is, you know, the house of Pharaoh, who commanded this culture of death that exists in Egypt, is being used to pay for and raise the child that will eventually be the undoing of Pharaoh. Okay, fourth excruciating scenario. Giving Moses back to Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So you know what? She, she's coming to a point now where she's gonna have to make the same decision again. She's gonna have to give up control again there's more certainty in the decision now than there was before, but she has to give her child back to Pharaoh's house at some point. But she has to trust God, and so she decides she's going to trust God. She gives the child back to Pharaoh's house. So, so as we just review, I just want to review kind of the, the whole story this morning. I want to ask the question, number one, what has sinful fear produced in this story? Sinful fear has produced division amongst people. You have now Egyptians and Hebrews uh, placed against each other, Egyptians oppressing the Hebrews, and then it, so it's pr also produced racism. You have uh, now people who, because of fear, now we look at all of those people, whoever those people might be, and say because they don't look like us and because they don't uh, do the things that we do, that now they're somehow a worse people, and so we're going to feel like it's okay to oppress them. What else has sinful fear produced? It's produced deception. It's produced all sorts of lies. It's produced things going on in the back room behind the scenes. It's produced murder. It's produced atrocity. Look at all the destruction that has been produced by sinful fear, by this wrongly placed fear. But what has the fear of God produced? It's produced protection of life. It's produced a clean conscience for the people who are acting in the story. It's produced reunion between a mother and her baby. It has produced bold faith. Every person who acts in this situation acts boldly because they understand who God is. 
It's produced space for God to show up. You know, when you respond out of fear of God, you create space for God to go to work and do the things that he does. So I've been talking a little bit about this idea of the fear of God. And um, I figured it'd be helpful for us to just walk through, hey, what is the fear of God? Um, we can talk about it generally, and some people have said, you know, well, the fear of God is kind of just like a respect for God. I, okay, the problem is, is that the Hebrew word for fear of God, every time that it's used, means terror. It means there's something inside of us that recognizes God's power. And so the first piece of the fear of God is this, when I fear God, I understand his power. So you know what? Jesus says something like this. Hey, you know what? Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who has power over the soul. That's the kind of power that we're talking about with God. So when I fear God, number one, I understand his power. Number two, when I fear God, I obey him. I recognize that if God is the one who stands above all of creation, You know what, this world might have threats towards me, but the greatest threat lies in him. So how am I gonna respond to him? Well, I'm gonna recognize that better than obeying uh, the, the things of this world, I'd be better off obeying him, right? So this is like kids and parents. Like a kid doesn't have to obey their friends. Their friends have no power over them, right? A kid obeys their parents, though, because their parents have a certain level of authority over the things that they do. So when I fear God, I obey him. Number three, when I fear God, I am genuinely grateful. Two reasons for this. Number one is common grace. God, who stands above the whole world, who is more powerful than any other being in all of creation, who the word says uh, be terrified in his presence, right? Like that's the concept that we're given. That God works out the universe so that human beings can be cared for, so that we can have things like hospitals there to protect us when we need them, so that we can have structures in society that that care for people. Like this is, these are the things that God has orchestrated. And so this God who is terrifying is loving the world through the ways that he sustains the universe. The second one though is this, that God revealed to us mercy and love in Jesus. The most powerful being in all of the universe went to die for the sake of people so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be welcomed into relationship with him. And so when I fear God, you know what? I recognize how powerful he is, but then I see what he did, and I am genuinely grateful. And so number four, when I fear God, I trust him. When I fear God, I trust him because I don't just see how powerful he is, but I see just how much he loves me. And so I trust him. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, put fear in its place. So you know what? Fear is powerful. We've talked about the power of fear to cause great destruction or protect life and and bring life. And so I want to tell you, fear is not a bad thing if it is in the right place. Fear is not a bad thing if it's in the right place. In fact, I tell you that rightly placed fear is more powerful than any other worldly power. Think think of um, all the heroes of this story. 
All the heroes that are, we're given in this story, they are all powerless women. That's who's put in front of us. In fact, we start with the Hebrew midwives who would have been like lowest of the low in terms of society. What can they possibly accomplish but because they feared God? You know what they do? Their obedience through their simple trust of him, they begin the undoing of the most powerful man in the world because they feared God. So put fear in its place because rightly placed fear is more powerful than any other worldly power. Second, so what is this? Learn to respond properly to fear. You know what, we are, this is just like the nature of how we exist in this world. We are a fear-filled people. So, so how many things are you fearing right now? I could tell you how many things I'm fearing right now. Like I have, I have to pay taxes this year. We're in tax season. That's not thrilling. There's a little bit of fear going on with that. I've got a daughter who uh, kind of eats whatever she finds on the floor. And so now I'm like, I'm stressed out all the time about what my child is gonna find and put in her mouth and potentially choke on her. Ingest and what, how, can that, how that can go. You know what, and, and so there are so many things to be afraid of. There's an election coming up, and that has great impact on a lot of people, right? I could be up here preaching with my fly down. Now, like, that's something to be afraid of. You know, there are, there are all of these things, and these, they are things to be afraid of. And, it, and the question is not whether or not we have fear. It's whether we respond out of a greater fear. So I have a question for you. What do you know about God? Here's some things you should know. (coughs) He loves you more than anyone. He displayed that love for you in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross for your sake, died in your place for your sin. What else should you know about God? He keeps his promises every single time. Jesus was proof to us of that because not only did he die, but he rose from the dead. Shows us that God keeps his promises. What else should you know? He has control over all things, including your soul. What else should you know? He is good. So you know what? When God appears to be nowhere, convince your heart to trust him. When God appears to be nowhere, when, God, when you think God has forgotten you, convince your heart to trust him. So if you have trouble believing that he's trustworthy, if you have trouble believing just what kind of God he is, I wanna encourage you, dig into scripture. You wanna understand who God is, the kind of God that he is, why exactly it is that he is trustworthy? Read your Bible, like open it up. Let it instruct your hearts as to the kinds of things that God does for the people that he loves, the kinds of ways that he cares for them. Because this is the story of a God who protects his people, who leads his people, who cares for them, who pursues them, who loves them. And if you're a Jesus follower, that's you. That means you open your Bible and you encounter the God who has a special concern for you and the kinds of things that he does for his people. So learn to respond properly to fear. My third so what is this, and you'll start seeing this more often. I want you to pray about these things. Every week um, for the last what, four weeks now, we have been producing prayers connected to the sermon. And the reason that they're connected to the sermon is because, gosh, if I stand up here and talk for this much time, 
and then like you all leave and it doesn't do anything to us, then I should just give up. Like there's, I'm not really doing anything. And so uh, these prayer requests, they're found, you can find them in your bulletin. You can also go to abcbartlett.org slash info. And, and what they do is they just instruct us how are we to, what things can we be praying for as we're seeking to live out God's word in our lives. So pray about these things. That's the third so what. As I close this morning, I just, uh, I want to read to you just a little snippet from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, book by C.S. Lewis. Uh, and, and these kids, it's an interaction between the kids and some of the characters in, in this land called Narnia. And they're learning about the king of this place called Narnia. And uh, this king happens to be a lion. They just find this out. And so, here's the story. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well then, isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. These children, as they learned who this lion was, who this king was, they learned to love him. And in fact, this one who was so terrifying to them, they longed to be with him. They cried when he was killed later in the story. Why? Because the lion was the most powerful entity in all of Narnia, and they knew that the lion always loved them. And they loved him back. And so Alliance Bible Church, our God is great, and he is indeed greatly to be feared, but he is good, and he loves us. Would you pray with me? Father, there are so many things we could be afraid of. There are so many things that we could lift up to the point that that it is ultimate in our lives. That we fear losing it so much that we would be willing to cause destruction in some way. But Lord, you are so good. And you are so powerful. You stand above all of creation. Anything in this world that might have power against us, your power is greater. So Lord, would you instruct our hearts how to fear you. And Lord, as we consider that fear, not just, not just to recognize respect of you, not just to be shaking in your presence, none of that, Lord, but, but to, to see as we fear you how you love us. And Lord, as you do that, would you help to make us into the kinds of people that you desire us to be? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.